0: So good to be here and see all of you guys. Yeah, we thought it would be most legal to leave one of us adults there to watch the sleeping baby. So Tony's getting dad duty and I get to hang out with adults instead of goodnight moon and spit up like usual. (laughs) So I'm very excited to be here with you guys. Um, It's so sad to me that I don't know some of you guys because I haven't been able to be at nighttime stuff since the baby starts going to sleep. So just um, to introduce a little bit of my background to you guys. Um, I grew up in Redmond, over on the west side, and went to Redmond High School. Apparently, some people know where that is. Holla, hey. Um, I went to college at Western. Whoa, weird. Okay. Um, and I graduated in 2010, which apparently was a little bit ago. And I studied community health, so go science peeps. And then immediately after graduating, like eight days later, um, I began the Chi Alpha internship at Western, where I had... Um, An amazing time spending a year being trained as a campus missionary. And don't you guys love our interns that we have here? They're so awesome. (laughs) So when I was an intern at Western, part of the internship, uh, you know, deal was getting to live in the girls' Chi Alpha house they have there. And so I got to have 15 housemates. You know, I try to avoid math now that I've graduated, but I think that that's like 16 women total and three bathrooms and zero dishwashers so yeah that experience alone refined my character so much oh yeah that was us that's Jeff the encouragement wolf uh (laughs) if you guys know Jessica Mayo I think she essentially stole that picture from summer camp and he was like our it's like an inside joke but he was our mascot all year so we made house t-shirts because that's what weird people do and so that's our picture in front of our big house um so then, uh, seven years ago, I got to join Kyle staff here, and it's the best job in the world, just saying, I love this ministry here at Central. Um, Tony and I got married coming up on six years ago, and it is such a blessing to share in all of life and uh, passion for ministry with that guy. And nine months ago, we had Tyler. So like I said, usually on Tuesday nights, Tyler and I always pray for you guys. Mostly I pray, but you know, I like to think he's in on it, too. We pray for you guys and for this meeting um, before feeding him his mushy, delectable dinner. Um, and then, like I said, I'm reading him Goodnight Moon and washed and sped up off myself and putting him to bed right when this is starting. So, <laughs> super good to be here, wearing real clothes, not PJs, and so it's nice to be here. Um, but I just wanted you guys to know that, like, I really do love you guys, and I'm praying for you all through the meeting every Tuesday, and I, like, eagerly am waiting by the d- garage door for Tony to get home, and then I make him tell me all about it, so love you guys so much. Interestingly, all the stuff that I just told you, they're not just basic facts that would be in like a brief life bio of me. They also can help us start thinking about tonight's topic because each of those parts of my life that have made me who I am so far have involved conflict and the need for conflict resolution. Wouldn't you agree if you think about your own life? Think about your family and friends growing up. Oh, yes. How about your classmates and teammates in sports or school? College roommates? Like me, I bet you have memories of lots of great, sweet, fun, like meaningful times together. And like me, you probably also have memories of painful, awkward, or like stressful times of conflict through some of those relationships. Have you ever noticed that it tends to be the people most close to us, closest to us that bother us the most? And who seem occasionally to be bothered by us? What's up with that? Haven't they realized we're perfect? I wish the person who bothered me the most was the checker at Fred Meyer because I'd only have to see them once a week for a few minutes. But alas, throughout my life, it has tended to be roommates who have bothered me the most or close friends or coworkers or a spouse. Tony! I love Tony so much. He is one of the best quality men in the world, I'm just telling you. And yet sometimes I find myself thinking that we would have an easier time communicating in marriage if we just had the same brain. (laughs) Which would be my brain, of course, because that's the one that makes the most sense to me. (laughs) And by me, I mean my brain. (laughs) So it's like this cycle, if you know what I'm saying. The earlier you learn this stuff, better marriage will be, I'm just telling you. But although that would be easier, you know, God's smarter and he knows that it's better that we have two brains and we get to work on perfecting the art of communication and resolving our conflicts. So, as we're getting into our conf- our topic tonight, which is conflict resolution, let's have a brief show of hands. Who here loves conflict? <laughs> That's way more than I expected. <laughs> Who here does not love conflict? <laughs> That's about right. So just so you know, I am not teaching this message tonight because I secretly like conflict. I unsecretly do not like conflict. But I do love resolution. And though I wouldn't say the process of resolving conflicts is like fun, because it takes work, and just watching a show on Netflix is a lot easier. But I love the outcome of resolution, where there's this sense of unity and like all the slates are clean, and you're just like, oh, this is so refreshing. So in college, I became pretty committed to learning how to resolve conflicts in a healthy way. And I just want to tell you guys briefly some of those personal for me reasons why this became important. First reason for me is because my family handled conflict really poorly, um, and it was not fun to go through. Many of you guys probably know what that's like. You don't have to raise your hands. Uh, but I think my most painful memories are from those moments where conflict was, like, the tensest and the worst, and it was handled so bad. Um, and I still am, like, healing from insecurities and from that dysfunction in my family. Most families have some dysfunction, if you guys didn't know. And our interns are super smart, and I've read a good book on that, so if you need to learn about your family dysfunction, just ask an intern, because they know things. Another reason that I wanted to learn how to resolve conflicts well is because I wanted to get married someday, and I wanted to stay married. I didn't want to end up like my parents. Um, As far as I could tell, because of not communicating well and not resolving conflicts in a healthy way, they let their marriage deteriorate and in a cold hostility. Um, And, you know, we lived on the same roof for 15 years of that. Like, they didn't speak to each other until they finally got divorced a few years ago. And I knew that it had to be more than just blind luck or, like, shooting in the dark, that you'd be able to stay married to somebody and even be more in love after 50 years than, like, less in love or um, divorced. I knew that it would take work, because that's what everybody says, and much of that work seemed to be communication and conflict resolution. Um, So the verse that says, don't let the sun go down when you are angry, um, that became really important to me in a commitment Um, that I was going to keep a really short time frame of resolving conflicts when I was in a marriage because I'm just scared of it ever going that way, honestly. Uh, Third reason for me is I wanted to serve as a missionary after I graduated college. And I heard from lots of people that the number one reason missionaries leave the field is because of conflict with other missionaries. How lame is that when there's like a world that needs to hear about the the gospel of Jesus and you've raised your funds and then you just can't resolve conflicts with other, other Christians. And the last interesting reason is I just, you ever like learn more and uh, like read more of the Bible, like in core, you know, you learn more things about how to read the Bible and one-on-ones, and then you read something, and you're like, how long has that been there? Because I've read this a number of times, and I swear <laughs> this just popped up. So I eventually noticed in the New Testament that a lot of the letters that Paul writes to the churches, they weren't just randomly inspired theological speeches, It's not just like Paul had some, like, awesome introvert time. He's like, oh, I'm totally thinking about this topic. I'm just going to, like, write it and send it off to Ephesus. He's writing, like, very urgently to resolve, confront, or redirect some conflict or dysfunction in a church. For example, who here has read the book Philippians? Awesome book, right? Did you know that one of Paul's main purposes in writing Philippians was to fix a fight between two specific women in the church? Crazy, read it again. Read it tonight or tomorrow. I'm just telling you, he even calls them out by name. And often we just glaze over stuff like that because we're like, I don't know them, I don't know how to pronounce that name, What ifs. Um, Like, I'm not Yodia, oops, uh, spoiler alert. But suddenly you realize why Paul wrote three awesome chock-full chapters on unity and be of one mind and be of one spirit, serve one another, not yourselves, um, like be servant love. And then he calls out the two ladies. It'd be like preaching a whole amazing message and then being like, in conclusion, the worship team can come up. Cassie and Meredith, get it together. <laughs> <laughs> like, that's what it would be like. So I'll just leave that to you guys if, you know. But Paul's calling out specific stuff. And that's not just like, whoa, rude. Why does Paul do that? If communities of Jesus followers have unresolved conflicts within us, our witness for the gospel is going to get shot so fast in our community. And that's serious beans business because the ministry of the gospel to our community is why Jesus has put us here, if you didn't know. If Paul didn't go out of his way to urgently contend and write awesome letters for these conflicts to get fixed very quickly, do you guys think the church would have survived to today? I think that's a serious question to wrestle with because our gospel our, our our ministry of the gospel our witness is our foremost purpose and it can be so quickly crippled if we just get lazy or selfish and don't deal with conflicts with our fellow brothers and sisters. And whenever that happens, whenever we have conflicts that aren't resolved, it's like party time for Satan. It's like Super Bowl Sunday and he's like preparing all the mem- the merchandise to sell and everything. He thrives and loves and feeds on our conflict. He just gets he busts out the lighter fluid and just gets busy dousing it on the situation. He's just like amplifying your anger. He's amplifying bitterness and self-pity. He's like, oh, you should really dwell on that more. Um, he, he amplifies our envy. He gets us involving other people, um, not the person that we're having conflict with, but everybody else potentially, and distracting us from our mission to reach our campus with the gospel. Because on the flip side, there is no power on earth like that of believers who are united together. That's why Jesus set us up as a church rather than thousands and millions of individual superhero lone wolf Christians. We show the world the glory of God by how we relate to one another. And that is an awesome privilege and it's also like a sobering reality. How are, how are you and I doing at that? So those are some of the reasons why I'm committed to resolving conflict in a healthy way Like as of college. Um, I think we should probably try to define conflict a bit before we keep going. I want to try to define conflict as relational discord, disharmony, a lack of relational unity or peace. There are some, th- some things that are not conflict, when small, innocent things just bother or annoy you, but where you, with God's help, can exhibit self control and patience to endure that bothered feeling, but you can still thoroughly love the person um, and think of them in high regard. So some things are not conflict. For example, I deeply, deeply dislike country music. A few years ago, peeps, I'm preaching. A few years ago, I was a bridesmaid in a wedding. And the bride and groom, their their deal, other than getting married, was that they were going to play country music all day, yee from doing our hair and makeup early in the morning to all the way through the reception at night. Love it. And so... There was three bridesmaids, by the way, and one bride, and everyone was very introverted. Very introverted. So we're sitting there way too early in the morning because they require you to get there so early to do your hair and makeup. Get there really early, coffee hasn't even kicked in yet. We shouldn't even be trying to talk. We're all introvertedly doing our makeup and hair in a silence dominated by that nasty music. And I, I experienced a deep, gristly feeling inside of myself of annoyance. But my relationship with the bride and the bridesmaids was not in question. God's grace is so abundant, I am convinced that he loves people who love country music too. (laughs) So our relationship was not in conflict. I just had to be mature and internally get over my annoyance. So that can be like You know, maybe there's even people in this room, who even knows, I'm just gonna go there. Maybe there's people in this room who have personalities different than yours. And maybe you wouldn't say like, OMG, I naturally wanna be BFFs. Like, maybe you don't naturally relate together or there's some things that kinda bother you. But in maturing love, we can practice patience for those quirks while maintaining a deep, growing love for who they are on the inside under the quirks and everything. So that type of stuff is not conflict. That's just be mature. Some music, you know, won't be in heaven, and it's fine. But (laughs) that's a joke. That's a joke. I'm going to now turn to the Bible, and (laughs) let's briefly look at how God calls us to relate to one another. Um, If we didn't get Bibles passed out, uh, if I wasn't paying attention, can we get the Bibles passed out now, please? Let's take a look briefly at how God calls us to relate to one another. Um, and I may, I'm especially talking about these types of people in this room here tonight, so people who are following Jesus. Um, we're in a fellowship together. John thirteen thirty four says, We are to love each other just as Jesus loves us. How does Jesus love you personally? Well, I see that he loves us selflessly and wholeheartedly. He poured out his life and, and even poured out his death um, to serve us and to promote our good higher than his good. Romans 12.10 says we are to love each other like brothers and sisters, and we are to outdo each other in showing honor. That's biblical competition for you. We are to compete in who can outbless the other person, who can hold each other in highest esteem, who can talk the best about each other in public, etc. Hebrews 12.14 says we are to strive for peace with everyone and to strive for the holiness without which no one can see the Lord. 1 Corinthians 13.4 says we are to be patient and kind, not boastful, not proud, not envious of each other. Ephesians 4.2 says we are to be completely humble and gentle and patient with each other and to bear each other's burdens. That means I'm supposed to be the type of sister to Cassidy that when she's wrestling with something, I'm all into wrestling in that thing with her. I'm going to like bear it up with her so she can have some support as she's uh, striving to victory over that thing. 2 Corinthians 13.11 says we are to aim for restoration, comfort each other, live at peace, be of one mind with each other. That's some serious, all-encompassing unity. So I would expand my definition of conflict from earlier to say, if our ability to live all these ways towards another brother or sister in our community, if it's weakened by something that's happened or some attitude we've developed, I would say that's conflict. If somebody does something or says something that hurts your feelings Wounds you, wrongs you, or sins against you, when you know there's some hurt there and your relationship is impacted, that's conflict. When there's a sense of brokenness or bitterness or hurt or wrongdoing between you and somebody else, that's conflict. If there's anybody, like in CORE and Kai Alpha, any, anybody that you know that you can't hold in the high esteem and, and like special respect and, and admiration we're supposed to hold each other in, um, if your opinion of them and your relationship with them has been harmed and kind of lowered, that, that's some conflict to deal with. So whenever there's disharmony rather than harmony, that's conflict. And I'm just saying this stuff because there's possibly some of those re- realities going on in this room right now because that's just par for the course for humans, which we are, I would say. Conflict is totally normal and it's just totally par for the course for humans who are living in a sin-drenched world. We are all still construction zones. Jesus is changing us from a worldly version of ourselves into his image. He's changing us from immaturity to maturity. And he says that that's going to be taking place for our whole lives until we meet him face to face. Until we we leave this life and in, our, our, in eternal life, we're going to be construction zones that he's, he's perfecting. And I don't say that to be like, ooh, permanent cop out. I say that to say we're always going to be bugging each other or messing up along the way because we're still wrestling with the brokenness in this world and in ourselves. Um, So that just means we should know that conflict is normal to experience. Don't freak out. It's not like nuclear war or anything like that. It's just a little hiccup in a relationship. But when conflict is handled well and the way that God calls us to, it can make us more like Jesus. It can aid that process of the construction zone in our lives. And it can even strengthen our relationships as God's family and as God's army to function the way he calls us to in this world but that happens only if we resolve them in the way God instructs us to. So the next question I want to think about is, why does unity and healthy conflict resolution matter to God? If you think about it, at a simple, fundamental level, the gospel is really about conflict and conflict resolution. Our sin is the cause and the ongoing result of our conflict with God, both individually, for every person, that's true, and for us as, as humanity. We are conflicted with our creator because we have rejected his leadership over our lives. And instead, we try to exalt and worship ourselves as the ones who know best. We try to write our own story and live for our own good rather than writing, joining God's story and living for his good alone. Romans one twenty five describes this, saying, They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. Amen. So we as humanity and every person in this room had a massive conflict with God that was incredibly tricky to resolve. What did God do? God was the one to take the initiative. He came directly to us to resolve our massive conflict with him. The father sent his own son, Jesus, to somehow stuff his infinite divinity into a human body. Jesus became God in a bod to be born among the people that God was in conflict with so he could resolve it. That's why Jesus came to resolve our conflict with him. Jesus lived among God's people. He grew up and taught everyone around him who God is and the way to live in obedience and unity with God, to undo the Romans 1 reality. Jesus came to undo the Romans 1 reality, which is really the Genesis 3 reality, the first time humanity rejected God's rule. Jesus came, he taught us what it takes to live the new life that we could choose to embrace once our conflict with God was resolved. Then Jesus paid the price to fully, forever, permanently resolve your conflict with God and mine by taking all of our sins and everything messed up by our t- conflict onto himself. Second Corinthians 5.21 says he became sin so that in him we could become the righteousness of God. It's like a switcheroo tradesies. Jesus became our conflict so that in him we could be unified with God again. Jesus was our once for all sacrifice of atonement. Do you know what that bible word means? It's simple, at one mint. Jesus' death on the cross shattered all the barriers between you and God. I and you, we were separated, by, but his death made us at-one with him again. Sacrifice of at one mint. Jesus' death justified us forever. Do you know what that bible word means? It means that it's just as if I had never done anything wrong. Just as if the conflict never existed between God and you. You know how some people say, I forgive you, but then they like bring the thing up an hour later and use it as ammo against you? God doesn't do that. Though he knows and can remember more than any human, he says that when we ask him for forgiveness, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins, cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He chooses to remember our sin no more and separate it as far as the east is from the west. Which last time I looked at a map is like infinite. We are justified because of Jesus' death. It's just as if you'd never done anything wrong. And this, friends, is the good news of the gospel, and this is why it matters that God resolved our conflict with him. If we don't understand the conflict that we had with God, we're like, no biggie, then words that the writers of Scripture make such a big deal about are lost on us, like atonement and justification. Jesus' death was such a big deal precisely because our sin was such a big deal, because our conflict was... Actually, straight up unresolvable from our end to God. We were out of choices. By recognizing the fullness of what God and His grace did for us, we can start to see what a big deal this newfound freedom we have in God is when we decide to receive the right to become children of God, walking with Him anew. If our conflict with God wasn't fully resolved, if it was just like, eh, I think we're kind of resolved ish, none of us could know that we're saved. The reason that we, children of God, live with a peace that surpasses understanding is because we know, he says it like a trillion times in scripture, I'm pretty sure, that God has fully, completely, forever resolved that conflict and healed our relationship, 100%, no doubt. I am at one with him again, not 90%, not 0.8 or whatever. I am at one with him again. I am justified. God doesn't like sort of in the back of his mind remember what I did. He chooses to see me with the righteousness of Christ. And that is true for you as well if you are um, following him. And that's how we taste freedom, you guys. That's how we get a walk in a way where we can transform this corrupted planet rather than continuing to contribute to it. So what does this mean for us tonight? I think that we should learn from how God resolves his conflict with us so that we can learn how to handle some conflicts the way that his style is. A couple things to learn from this. God took the initiative as number one. God didn't pout or throw himself a pity party or vent to others or passive-aggressively send lightning down in your general direction <laughs> while playing hard to get in the heavens. He didn't send out a lazy tweet to the universe whining about our, b- our behavior. God actively took the initiative to come straight to us in the most personal and costly way to resolve that conflict. That's the second thing. God came directly to us. And this is like the million-dollar thing that, if you only hear one thing, I would like you to believe this one, that God comes directly to us to resolve our conflict with him. And it was the most costly way ever by having one part of the Trinity be downgraded to a human body for eternity and then die a literal, nasty, lonely execution on the cross. God had part of himself be separated from the rest of himself of the Trinity temporarily, so that we could be brought near. Jesus came directly to us, um, poured himself out so we could become his people again. Third thing, God treated us honestly and lovingly while working to full resolution with us. God is fully honest about the depth of the reality of our sin and our conflict, but he's also fully willing to go to every, every corner to heal it th- in the deepest reaches of his love. He says it's his kindness that leads us to repentance. Uh, Romans 2.4. He treats us respectfully. He doesn't force us to a decision or outcome. He can't coerce us to be reconciled because he gave us free will. And that's similar for us where we can't change the other person or control their response, but we do everything that depends on us to provide the full like provision for reconciliation, to be fully honest about what's up, to be respectful and loving and providing for resolve. Just a quick like reality check. I would say God's style of resolving conflicts is somewhat different from what we see the world's style to be, wouldn't you say? I would say the popular ways that our world hand- handles conflict is like the opposite of what God does. Let's go through these three again. Rather than taking the initiative to fix it, I would say it's much more common to just be passive aggressive or play cold, harsh social games or vaguely tweet or post on social media about your conflict. Naming the person or not naming the person, but everybody knows who you're, like, lamely describing. All of these ways seem normal because everybody around us does it. But they're actually really evil and the enemies of love. Um, Second one, rather than coming directly to the one you're in conflict with, the worldly sinful option is to go to practically everybody else besides the person you're in conflict with, right? The worldly trend is to vent to your friends Or your significant other, or to the entire social media world, instead of going to the actual person that you're in conflict with that you need to fix things with. And really, what I've noticed is by that point, after somebody's gone to their whole core or one on ones or squad, whatever that is, or like everybody on social media, you feel so like validated in your position, you never end up going to the person you need to fix things with. You're just chilling in your like castle of validation and like feeling all like, oh, I was so wronged. I'm just going to hang out here in my little tower forever and just be passive-aggressive to them. And that sucks. That wasn't in my notes, but I lost my spot. So all of that pity partying, um, it tends to make people just stuck and, and entrapped in that forever. And like I saw, I saw the extreme from my parents. Um, but I would just say that unresolved conflict doesn't go away. And that, that fortress of validation becomes a prison. Um, so that's something that I think people don't realize. And when I say you, I just mean people nowadays. Third, rather than speak honestly and lovingly while trying to get to full resolution, the worldly options, if they ever talk face-to-face, are more like accusing and yelling and blaming, uh, unfair tactics or manipulation, things that keep the walls of pride up for both people and the ramps of reconciliation closed off. Of course, people who have experienced these styles of conflict resolution would hate the idea of conflict because these are impossible ways to resolve with somebody. You can't resolve if you're both in this cycle of pride and, and hurt and nobody's willing to make the first move. It's totally set up to fail. So if you've experienced any of these ways in your life or whatever, just breathe a sigh of relief because God's way of conflict is nothing like that. <laughs> so we can like, leave all of these um, worldly like, patterns here and not have to do them or be, be limited by them anymore. God shows us a much better way of love. So, for all that we've talked about, now let's close up our time by diving into what are the steps that the Bible gives us for how to handle conflicts with each other. I'm going to go through the six steps that I see as we wrap up our teaching for tonight. Step number one. So if somebody's wronged you, you're feeling the feels, step number one is pray about what you're thinking and feeling and want to say. Pray about it first. James 4, 7 through 10. For Jesus followers, God is the only one you are allowed to vent to. It's called prayer. Isn't that cool? It even has a different name. That's in the Bible rather than venting. So talk to God. God can handle all your feelings. God can handle your immature reactions. He can handle your mature reactions. He can handle everything you think that's founded on truth and everything you think that's just mad. Like that whole mixture of what you're feeling and what you're going through He can handle it. He's very infinite and very big and very wise. He is God. So take it to him and sort it out with him. Please, for the love of unity, keep your fingers away from your phone and just fold them in prayer to God. (laughs) Stay off the Snapchat and everything evil, like I'm saying. Not that they're evil, but when you use them that way, they are a vessel for evil. Fold them in prayer to God so that hurts are healed rather than multiplied. Pray for insight, pray for wisdom, pray for humility, and pray for God to give you some right words to say to the person that you're hurt by. So step number one is get straightened out in your mind there with the Lord helping you. Step number two, recognize that conflict often arises from our own desires which battle within us. That's what James 1 pretty much says. So as you're praying with God, ask him to help you see what in me is contributing to this problem. So for me, just being real, a lot of times, or something eh, a lot of times i recognize in myself a desire to be seen as smart or i really like to be right ask tony pray for tony actually and pray for me i recognize a desire to be right um, or a desire to be secure or to get my own way those are some of those desires that jesus is real good at refining out of me but sometimes they just bubble back up you know So in that sea of emotions inside of me, some of those things can drive me to say or think things that create conflict with one of my friends or somebody on staff or with my wonderful husband, Tony. So when I feel bugged by somebody, often I can notice it's because what they're being recognized for goes against my longing to be seen as the smartest or the best or whatever. Like, that's embarrassing. That's stupid that I would think that. But it's in me and it still comes up. And that's what can promote conflict or why I say stupid things. I have to crucify that desire all the time to the obedience of Christ because I need to be a loving team player. I need to promote Jesus rather than Melissa. The world does not need me. The world needs the, lo- the love of Jesus. That's my calling. So it's helpful to recognize what's going on in your inside sea of emotions before you meet with the person you're talking to. Because sometimes whatever they said or did, it might just be like 60 or 40% of why you're feeling the way that you're feeling doesn't mean that there isn't something to talk to them about, but first it's helpful to get everything in perspective and realize there's some insecurity that's flamed up. There's something that's ticked off inside of me that I need to recognize so that I can actually speak honestly and humbly in truth. So pray for the spirit of truth to illuminate what's going on in you and work with God on those things and pray for the right words to say. Then number three, go directly to the person you're in conflict with and talk about it. Matthew 18, 15. So to be clear, the first, the immediate, the only person that you are to talk to about the conflict you're going through is with the person you're going through it with. Not to friends, not to Snapchat, not to the Kyle of table, not to your squad, not to Twitter, not to the checker at the store, or anybody other than the person you're having the conflict with. I can't tell you how many one-on-ones I've had where, like, over the you know the half-hour, hour, like, I'm hearing every angle, I'm sure, of, like, what's going on and how how my friend is feeling. And, like, I'm not saying that they're feeling wrong things, but, like, the only honest suggestion I can offer, which I offer, like, 50 times by the end of the one-on-one, is, like, wow, you just really need to talk to Sarah. Ten minutes later, wow, you articulated how you're feeling so well. You should tell Sarah. I can't fix it for you. Like, we're just going to keep going through this. Like, you should please just set up a time and talk to Sarah. Um, like that happens over and over again, because really that is the only way for us to get conflicts resolved is for the person and the person to talk it through. So you can just save time by just going straight to them. Um, just like God came straight to us to resolve our conflict, he commands us to go straight to the person to resolve our conflict. How would you do this? You can utilize some modern tools that I have found, such as the text message message or the Facebook Messenger, or the talking briefly to them in person, whatever way you and another human can communicate appropriately and privately, just shoot them a message and say, hey, can we meet for 20 minutes sometime this week to talk? And then sit down in a booth in the circ, and wherever and just talk about it, two of you. Set up a time to meet where you both can be the least distracted and the most likely to respond in love, hearing the other person's concerns. So what I'm saying is bombarding them as they're hurrying to class to take an exam is not a wise time to have a constructive talk. They shouldn't hear you at that time. I'd prefer they take their exam and then you guys talk at a different time. Sometimes too late at night or after too emotional of an event also could not be a wise time depending on the person. Um, So figure out when you and they can be the least distracted by other stressors and find a time to really be able to focus on what you guys are saying and make that happen as soon as possible. Um, One last shout out for roommates. Sometimes... If you guys are having, like, roommate tension, like, you know, with dishes or, like, who's has date night over, like, all these other things that tend to be roommate issues, sometimes talking in your shared living space isn't a great idea because it's so charged and loaded by that point. So going to a, a neutral place can be w- way better, like um, campus or coffee shops. So that's why I just say those things because um, it's, like, neutral. There's no, like, power struggles or whatever happening there. Fourth step, <coughs> once you and the person are there meeting talking. Speak the truth in love, Ephesians four fifteen through 16. You can maybe begin by saying, hey, I care a lot about you, and our relationship is important to me. And then you can describe the problem in a humble, accurate way. You can humbly explain your feelings or the issue you perceive. Try not to accuse or to assume. I read somewhere, it's probably a meme or something, but it said, assumptions are to relationships what cavities are to teeth. And I was like, I've been married enough, long enough to know, oh yes, truth to that. But good communication, I guess, would be like super whitening toothpaste that makes you all minty fresh. So communicate well without assuming. And it's also not helpful to blame or speak in extremes like you always and you never, because those probably aren't true. Really helpful to speak in honest, truthful, humble ways. When this happened, I felt this. For example, when you said this about me in front of our whole core, it made me feel really embarrassed or belittled. You can give them a chance to respond and like listen well as they share their perspective. After they respond, give them feedback so that they confirm to you that you, you get what they're saying. I heard you say that actually you feel like I always contradict you when you're talking. Is that true? So you guys can keep understanding where each other's coming from and what like feelings you've been storing up against each other. Keep listening well, keep speaking truth in a humble way um, until you each confirm, yeah, you understand what I'm saying, I understand what you're saying. Step number five, seek and give forgiveness. Ephesians four thirty two to 5, 2. Forgive them just as in Christ God has forgiven you. How completely and fully is that? Total, 100%. As far as the east is from the west is how far our wrongdoing is from us. So when we forgive each other, we need to give that same total guaranteed release. We're committing. I'm not going to bring that up and use it as ammunition against you in an hour or ever. I'm not going to tease you about that thing. I'm not going to be sarcastic with you about that. I'm not going to keep dwelling on it. Even though we say we're resolved, I'm going to keep fueling it in my brain and being like, "Oh, mg, that hurt, because you've already released that. We're not going to keep letting Satan pour lighter fluid on it in our brains We're not going to talk to other people about it and damage their reputation in other people's minds. And you're not going to let it hinder your relationship with them going forward. Uh, Step number six, last one. Find a solution that promotes each other's best interests. Philippians 2, 3 through 5. So for example, with the example I gave you, okay, you feel like I'm always contradicting you when you talk. Okay. All right, I promise that I'm going to work on finding common grounds in what you're saying before I offer a different thought or solution. This is actually something Tony and I go through. I will try to think and link. I'm gonna try to have my response build on the foundation of what you said rather than what I, Melissa say, blowing up what Tony said, Um, because anyways. So I'm gonna try really hard to acknowledge and affirm what you said before I find a way to say the, the contrast or whatever. Okay, I'll commit to not teasing you about your appearance in core. I'll commit, this is not what Tony does, I'll commit to not teasing you about your appearance. I'm not going to use sarcasm against you in core. I'm going to just use my mouth to say good things about you. I can think of plenty of those. Find solutions that you can commit to, um, to grow the other person's good. That's what we're all about, right? So it's just a matter of taming our tongues from the the ways that we really don't want to go down that path, and instead just building each other up in love and good deeds. So these are the basic biblical principles for fixing our disunity and our conflict with each other. Start in prayer, personal ownership, handle it one-on-one with them and only them, speak the truth in love, just be straight up, and ask them for forgiveness, forgive each other, find solutions that serve each other. And this, friends, is really how God is calling us as Chi Alpha, as his body on campus, as your apartment, your cottage, your core group. This is how you are to handle conflicts together. Um, Just a quick aside, there are some situations in life where things go beyond what I currently outlined. Like, there could be some very complex family situations or an issue um, with abuse or danger or where somebody won't, like, repent of their sin. Reconciliation can only happen if there's two soft, repentant hearts, so you can't control them, like I said. So there's some situations <coughs> where they won't reconcile or even can't because they've passed away or they've cut off communication. Um, if In those special cases, there's additional things that um, some of us and staff or whatever could direct you to other resources of additional things to think about, like boundaries and, and things like that. But in general, these are the guidelines that um, God lays out for his people to handle our conflicts. So I want to call us to commit to these tonight. So, in closing, the worship team, can come on up. I just thought of a few application things for us um, based on our topic tonight. Um, one of the first things that I was thinking all of us could reflect on. Think about any habits that you need to change so you can commit to resolving conflicts biblically. So I talked about worldly practices tonight, um, the ways that the world does conflict. Are there any of those that you have been doing that you need to repent of and stop doing ASAP? Are there any godly practices that you need to start doing um, and start walking in that way of obedience? Another one, um, are there any conflicted relationships in your life right now that you need to resolve especially with anybody else here in Kyle for our core friendships. If you have any outstanding issues with people, um, please deal with them soon. Matthew 5, uh, 23 says, it gives the example of, like, if you're offering your gift at the altar and you remember that your brother has something against you, like, leave your gift there, press pause on your worship, and go make things right with your brother, and then come back and finish offering your gift. Um, God prioritizes our unity in our relationships as his church, even above our worship of him, which... It's counterintuitive, but that's the brain he's training us to have. So I'm not saying that we all need to, like, break out and, like, fix things tonight in this worship session. But I'm just giving the suggestion that um, if there's somebody that comes to mind, um, write down a plan to get in contact with them very soon, tonight, tomorrow morning. um, And do that immediately so you can be resolved. And last up, we can just pray um, and praise God for how he's resolved our conflicts with us. Isn't that incredible? Free grace of God that he came from heaven um, and became one of us so we could become like him forever. So let's just receive his grace and praise him tonight.